God's Word. We've been in John's Gospel on Sunday morning, and so we're going to continue in our study. We're going to be in John's Gospel, the 8th chapter. We're going to begin reading at verse 37. So if you need a Bible to follow along with us, we're going to cover John chapter 8, verses 37 through 59. That'll take us to the end of the chapter, and that'll be our text this morning. If you need a Bible to study with us, just raise your hand. Pastor John's in the back. He'll slip you a Bible. Other than that, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to John chapter 8, again, beginning our reading and our study at verse 37. You recall that a couple weeks ago, as we have been doing this verse-by-verse study in John's gospel, that Jesus, in chapter 7, had gone to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles takes place in the fall of the year, And we know that Jesus is only six months away from going to the cross. It will be the next Passover and the next spring that he will be crucified. But at this time in the fall, Jesus would be teaching the people during the feast there at the temple in Jerusalem. And we talked in detail how the Feast of Tabernacle was a commemoration, how God provided for the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering. That is, that they had the pillar of fire that was there that would lead them. And so there at the temple, they had a large candlestick, a large uh, lamp that was there that would be lit during the feast, commemorating how the Lord led them in that way. Also, they would commemorate how the Lord provided bread from heaven, the manna, and then also water from the rock. And it was at the last day of the feast that Jesus would stand up and he would cry out that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of their belly will flow torrents of living water. It was an invitation to anyone who is willing to come. And Jesus there in Jerusalem, remaining after the feast was over, continuing to teach there at the temple as we moved into chapter 8, we know that he would make that wonderful declaration that I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so Jesus saying that I'm the light of the world, bringing light into that dark place. And as we've seen in this chapter, he goes on and declares that if you do not believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. And he would say to those who were turning to him, believing in him, that if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that's where we left off last time. So Father, we ask that you would just bless this time in the teaching of your word that we know that as we take in the truth of your word, because you are truth, and as we apply it in our lives, that truly we are free. And Lord, my prayer is is that we would be attentive, that we would be ready, that Lord, that um, we would be excited to hear Jesus again declaring that he is the great I am. So bless this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, they were mostly thinking of political freedom. They were under the yoke of Rome and they wanted to be free from Rome. But Jesus was going to free them from a greater you know, bondage that uh, man had and they had, and that was the bondage of sin. He was talking about the freedom of sin. 
And to weigh, the way to really be free in life is to walk close to the Lord and to abide in His Word and surrender your life to Him. And God doesn't want us to be in bondage to the deception of the world, to the pleasures of the world, to be enslaved in sin. He came to Jesus, free us from the penalty of sin, which He did as He would go to Calvary's cross and die for you and for me. He would rise from the grave. He conquered sin and death. But also, as we do abide in His Word, as, as the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, that He desires to free us and give us the you know, freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And so, of course, all these things that Jesus is declaring here at the temple, teaching the people, would bring resistance. It would bring hatred and confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel. And what we're going to see is this confrontation that is going on is going to continue with Jesus as we pick up our text to the point to where these religious leaders are going to make an attempt to have Jesus put to death at the end of the chapter. So let's begin to read in John chapter 8. As I told you, verse 37 is where we're going to begin this morning. Jesus is saying, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. He's talking to the religious leaders, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So it's interesting that Jesus, uh, where he's going to be taking this dialogue with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he recognizes that those religious leaders, as they say uh, that they are Abraham's descendants. Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. And they were always the religious leaders boasting that they were physical descendants of Abraham. And the reason that they did is because they had the mindset that because we are physical descendants of Abraham, that, that, that they automatically belong to God. They thought that it was, you know, a, a free pass to heaven. We're circumcised. We have a covenant relationship with God. Abraham is our father. But Jesus here is bringing a very important point out that he's been doing all throughout John's gospel that he's going to be talking spiritually, that if you truly want to be descendants of Abraham, that you need to be ones that are of faith, that he's going to be talking about spiritual descendants, and uh, they are only thinking in the terms of physical descendants. You see, as I mentioned, Jesus oftentimes speaking spiritually, just as he did in John chapter 3. Nicodemus coming, and Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And he's struggling. He's thinking physically. Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, no, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John chapter 4, the woman there, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, she's hearing about living water that Jesus is speaking about, and she says to Jesus, but you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. How are you going to get this water? And Jesus said, if you drink of this water, and I imagine him pointing at Jacob's well, then you're going to thirst again, but if you drink of the water that I have to give, living water, you'll never thirst again. He's talking spiritual. She's thinking physical. John chapter 6, as Jesus said, that I'm the bread of life that comes from heaven. And if you eat and drink of me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. And of course, we saw that the people were struggling and were offended by that teaching. Jesus says that the flesh profits nothing. The words that I give to you are spirit in life. 
So Jesus is telling them who really is their father. Yeah, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me. My word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen of my father, and you do what you have seen of your father. Now stay with me as we continue here, because Jesus in a few verses will identify what he means by this, who their father is. But verse 39, we read, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Hey, Abraham is our father is what they're saying. But Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the work of Abraham. Now, in verse 37, as we read, he just got through telling them, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. But now he says, if you were Abraham's children, and the implication here, very clear, is that he is telling them that you're not Abraham's children. So is this double talk? Is Jesus confused? Is there a contradiction here? No, not at all. Jesus is talking about their spiritual parentage. You're not Abraham's children because you want to kill me. You don't believe in me. You do not do the works of Abraham. Now, what was the work of Abraham? I think a lot of you know this, as we've covered this going through the New Testament that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness as we saw very clearly in our recent study of the book of Galatians. Paul is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. Abraham was a father of faith. He believed the message of God, but they, the religious leaders, were not receiving the one who came from heaven. When Paul was writing to the churches of Galatia, he would write in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, that just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So God told Abraham, clear back in Genesis chapter 12, as well as chapter 22, that through you, Abraham, your descendants, all the nations shall be blessed. Talking about how we, uh, from every nation and people and tongues, would come to faith in Jesus Christ. He is the father of faith, and we are the spiritual children of Abraham. These religious leaders were full of unbelief. They're desiring to kill Jesus. In verse 41, you do the deeds of your father. Now, who is their father? It isn't spiritually Abraham. Physically, yes, but not spiritually. So the Pharisees are going to shoot back at Jesus here. And then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, as we've discussed, this was a put down. Earlier in the chapter, as they're dialoguing with Jesus, the religious leaders said, who is your father? And it wasn't that the religious leaders were saying, uh, we'd like to meet your father, Jesus. Uh, they were, you know, insulting Jesus. It was a dig is what it was. Uh, we're, who's your father? And here they said, we weren't born out of fornication. The implication to Jesus was, you were. We know the story. And it interests me how it would be 
the, you know, situation with Mary, of course, that we know in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, Mary was. But the people didn't know that, and the religious leaders, they didn't believe that. And so here is the reputation that Mary had to live with for all these years, over 30 years now, that, that she was one that, that was, became pregnant, and she wasn't uh, married to Joseph. It was in the espousal period. But here, the religious leaders knew about that situation, and, and they're saying, well, we weren't born out of fornication. Who is your father? And these are insults that are given to Jesus. And so here, Jesus, as they're hurling these insults, they're saying, we have one father, God. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus here is making a very, very important point here. Your love for Jesus will determine who your father is. It is the father who sent me, Jesus said. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches here, does he? He has been saying that you do the work of your father. Well, our father is God is what they say. Jesus says, no, because if you love me, then God would be your father. But because of your unbelief, because you guys want to kill me, your father is the devil himself, who is a murderer and a liar and the father of lies. And sometimes people will read this and they'll think, well, Jesus is being pretty harsh on these guys. But Jesus is giving them truth. He's been giving them the opportunity to receive him, to accept who he is, but they refuse to open up their hearts to him. They continue in their blindness and hardness of heart to the point where we're going to see again very clearly by the end of the chapter, they want to kill Jesus. And so, you know, here they are. They're, they're boasting, those religious leaders, that Abraham is our father. God is our father. And Jesus says, no, that Satan is your father because you do his work. If God were your father, then you would receive me. You would do, you know, his works. If Abraham were your father, then you would do his works, and that is you would believe in me, have faith in me, but you don't stand in the truth. So you are of your father, the devil. Jesus being very straightforward with them. I think a good verse to write down in your notes this morning is Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. That says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You see, a friend's going to be honest with you. And as believers, we are to be honest with others, giving them the truth of the gospel, giving them the truth of God's word, even when it stings a little bit. We can come and we can give them truth. And we can talk to those who think that, well, I know God, and, and I have a relationship with God. And we can tell them that, listen, you don't have a relationship with God unless you have a relationship with Jesus. 
And we can take them to John's gospel. We can take them to these verses that we have been covering and explain to them that to truly know God is through Jesus Christ. When someone is living a lie, we can explain to them the truth because you see the enemy is going to try to keep people in a lie, believe in a lie, in deception. You can believe whatever you want and you'll be okay. Just be a good person and you'll make it to heaven. There's a lot of people believe in that lie. And we want to give them the truth that will set them free from the penalty of sin and also from living in the bondage of sin. We can come and we can talk to another brother and sister, one who's a believer, and we can give them truth. We can bring correction to them. Hey, brother, don't be enslaved to that sin. You know, you need to repent. You need to give it to the Lord. You don't want to continue in that bitterness. You don't want to continue in that sin that you're involved in. You don't want to continue in that attitude that you have. And I know that sometimes when correction will come to us, that it does sting a little bit. But here's the thing, that if we really care for people, then we will be honest with people. We will bring truth to them. And in love, we will speak that truth and the desire for them to do well in the things of God. We never want to compromise God's truth. I know that in my teaching and in my preaching, I don't want to compromise the truth of what God's Word declares. We don't want to compromise in our sharing with others, in our talking with our kids. We don't want to have the mindset of, well, I don't want to offend them, I don't want to exclude them, and, and I don't want them to not like me. Unfortunately, I think that happens too much among Christians. So that proverb is very, very important. You see, your friend will be honest with you and what they have to say to you. And when somebody brings truth to us, that it seems like it hits us a little bit hard, that it stings a little bit. When that happens, it very well could be and is that the Holy Spirit is convicting you as a believer, the Holy Spirit coming and and speaking to your heart as the Word of God comes into your heart as well. And that conviction, always remember this, is to draw you to the Lord. The condemnation of the enemy is to push you away from the Lord. And we are to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit when truth is brought to us, even though it might be a little bit hard or sting a little bit, as I said. You know the saying, that if you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one who yelps the loudest is the one who got hit. And the thing is, we can get hit with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and be thankful for it. Don't close your heart to it. Don't get bitter and angry that that person brought you truth, but be thankful that they care enough about you that they've given you truth. So remember, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Watch out for the kiss and flattery of the enemy. We continue reading in verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And he who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Uh, there's also a saying that if you tell a lie enough times to people, that they'll begin to believe it. The religious leaders here had lived in darkness because they refused to accept the truth. They had received a lie. 
they refused to let the light of the world expose their darkness, and they would continue in their unbelief. Now, in verse 46 here, I think it's worth noting and important for us to see what is being said here. Take note that Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? And in this, Jesus gives his enemies who hate him so badly that they want to kill him, Jesus gives them an opportunity to declare some sin in him. Now, I know I don't think I would dare to do that, especially to those who don't like me, especially to those who perhaps who want to persecute me. But notice here, as Jesus does do that, that these guys don't come up with a conviction of sin. They don't come up with a reasonable, logical conviction that would show that Jesus had sin because he is sinless. And in Jesus challenging these guys with this question, it's really putting his claims of deity on the line. But they could not come up with any conviction. They couldn't come up with any claim of sin. So now they're going to continue to revert to name-calling and ridicule and getting in their insults on Jesus. It is interesting that six months from now, when even Judas, who betrayed Jesus, would come to the conclusion that I betrayed innocent blood, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and the crowd that was yelling, crucify him, Pontius would say, why, what has he done? I find no fault in him at all. So Jesus here, giving them a chance, what, what sin do you convict me of? And they can't do it. In verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So they can't convict him of sin, so they revert to, again, name-calling. You're a Samaritan. And we talked about how the views, of particularly the religious leaders, were towards the Samaritans. The Samaritans who lived in this middle of the country, in that area that was called Samaria. And the Samaritans were very much despised by the religious leaders. And if they called you a Samaritan... It was an insult. It was almost like a cuss word is what it was. You're a Samaritan. You're of your devil. And by the way, remember, we saw that Jesus loved the Samaritans so much so that he would go and spend time with them, and many got saved. In the early church, as the gospel spread, it was Philip that was up in Samaria and would witness to the Samaritans. And again, another revival would break out at that time in the early church. So here they are hurling these insults at Jesus. Jesus says, I honor the Father. In verse 50, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. And most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, as this exchange is going on between Jesus and, and the Jews here, don't picture in your mind that there's this shouting match going on with Jesus. Hey, you're of the devil. And they're upset, and, well, you're a Samaritan, you know, and, and, and all of this. It isn't that way. I believe Jesus here, that he's being firm. But such love is coming from his heart. Hey, believe in me. I know that you want to kill me. I, I want to save you. And if you keep my word, you will never see death. You see, the word death has a different meaning to the Christian than to the non-Christian. For the person who belongs to Jesus, death is not a termination, not at all, but it's a transformation. 
The scripture tells us that a Christian, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The moment that we breathe our last, we will be in heaven with Jesus. And we're not going to taste death. We're not going to taste eternal death. Now, for the non-believer, they go on into eternity, but they experience eternal death because the definition of eternal death is separation from God. They will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what the truth of God's word declares, separate from God for all eternity because of the rejection of Jesus Christ. In verse 52, then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, you shall, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? So they're thinking, again, that Jesus is talking physical death. You must have a demon. Abraham's dead. He died 2,000 years ago. All the prophets are dead. Matter of fact, there hasn't been a prophet on the scene for 400 years. And I suspect that the Jews here had expected that Jesus would answer them in the negative. You don't think that you're greater than Abraham, do you? But they haven't been listening. I think that probably most of us, if not all of us, that we've experienced something like that, that we talk to somebody and they're so hard of heart. Maybe you've tried to give the gospel or the truth of God's word to them, and their hearts are so hard that it just like bounces off of them. They don't want to listen to it. They shut their ears to it. They don't want anything to do with it. And so they ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus, once again, will tell them that he is greater than Abraham and the prophets. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. So in Jesus claiming to be greater than Abraham, it is not an honor he takes to himself. It comes from the Father, and you don't know him. In verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Kind of interesting, a couple thoughts here. That they said, you're not but 50 years old. Now, Jesus at this time is in his early 30s, 32, 33 years old. We don't know what Jesus looked like. The Bible doesn't say. But it's kind of interesting here. They're saying, but you're not yet 50 years old. Could it be because Jesus didn't have a home? Foxes have holes, birds of the ears have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And all the walking that he did and sleeping under the skies, that he looked a lot older than what he really was, we don't know. But kind of an interesting statement here. But here they said, you know, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? As Jesus said that your father Abraham rejo rejoiced to see my day. And some scholars believe that perhaps Jesus is making a reference to Genesis chapter 14. Now in Genesis chapter 14, as a lot of you know the story, that Abraham just came back from the battle as he rescued his nephew Lot. And he comes back from the battle, and he meets a king called Melchizedek. He was a king and a priest. He was the priest of the Most High God. He was uh, the king of Salem, which is uh, Jerusalem. And he comes to meet Abraham, and he gives him 
bread and he gives them wine and Abraham accepts it and Abraham gave a tithe to him. And as a lot of you know that some scholars have suggested that Melchizedek was a Christophany, that is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, not all scholars take that view. We know that as Melchizedek is mentioned in the scriptures, that in Psalm 110, that you are a priest, speaking of the Messiah, forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, as Jesus is our great high priest, but he's from a superior priesthood, declaring Melchizedek was without mother or father, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So some believe that perhaps Jesus, the ones who take the view that Genesis chapter 14, that Jesus, you know, was there meeting with Abraham, that was a Christophany, they'll come to this and they'll help support perhaps what they're thinking from verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. But again, I think that what gets lost though in Genesis chapter 14, because we're trying to figure out, is that just a type of Jesus? Was it Jesus himself? But here's something that I don't want you to miss in Genesis 14. When Abraham came back from that battle, not only did he meet Melchizedek, but he met another king as well, didn't he? And we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. He would also meet the king of Sodom, Berah. And Berah, uh, he would offer to Abraham all the spoils of the battle. The battle that Abraham went and, and went against these kings and all these spoils that were taken. Berah offered all the spoils of the battle. And, and of course, Berah, his name means gift. Uh, Sodom means burning. Sodom was a very carnal, sinful place, as you know from the book of Genesis. And here is the king, Berah. The king of Sodom saying, take all of this, take, take the, the spoils, take, take it and enjoy. But here's the thing, as Sodom itself means burning, and you know that God would bring judgment on Sodom, didn't he? That if you and I bow down to Bera, everything that you live for, understand this, is going to burn up. The things in this world are temporary, and they're going to burn up. Now, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Uh, he's a priest, a king of Salem, which means peace. Jesus, he is our righteousness. He's the only one that can bring peace. Abraham accepts the bread and wine from him, which is a reminder of the Lord's death on the cross. So when Abraham rejected Berah and accepted Melchizedek, it was like Abraham was making a statement of faith. It was like he was saying, I don't want the world. That's not a priority. I want Jesus. So the question for all of us to ask in the honesty of our hearts this morning is what is it that you want? What is it that you want? What is your priority? Is it the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, or is it Jesus? And Jesus here talking to these religious leaders are saying that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad because he believed God and he was a friend of God. And because of that, he was blessed by God. 
So verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. As I mentioned to you, and I, I want us to understand this clearly, because there are those who will come along and say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And in this section, in verse 58, we see very, very clearly as well as other portions of Scripture that Jesus claimed to be God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be equal with God. And they understood that very, very clearly, and that's why they're picking up stones to stone him, stone him for blasphemy. What was Jesus saying? Before Abraham was, I am, ego ami, the, the name of deity. You see, those religious leaders would immediately think back to the book of Exodus, Remember when Moses was called to the burning bush? And as Moses was called to the burning bush, Moses, take your sandals off. The ground that you're on is holy. And Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to use you to free the children of Israel. And Moses would ask God, what is your name that I can tell the children of Israel your name? And what was the response of God? I am that I am. You tell them that I am has sent you. So that was the name of God, I am. They would translate it Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, no vowels. They, they reverenced the name of God so much they didn't want to make it where you pronounced it. Jehovah, it might be translated. L-O-R-D, capitalized in the Old Testament in your Bible. That's the name. When Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, the name of God, as he is answering these religious leaders. He's saying that I am the one, <laughs> the voice that was speaking from the burning bush that sent Moses to the children of Israel. I am God. And they were so offended by that that they pick up rocks to throw it at him. They knew exactly what it was that he was claiming. They wanted to kill Jesus because he had made this claim of being God. He saw, and we saw in chapter 5, he already made claims. They said that you make yourself out to be equal with God. So he would hide himself and pass through the temple because it isn't his time. The hour had not come. They couldn't touch him until his hour had come. Jesus, as we have seen in this chapter, claimed to be the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus claims that if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And he who keeps my word shall not see death. And he says now that I am, before Abraham was, I am. I am is standing in your midst. Jesus is the I am. And he proved who he was and who he claimed to be by dying on the cross for our sins. And then he validated that by rising from the grave and conquering sin and death. He is the I am. He is our creator, our maker, our Lord, our savior, our redeemer. And he comes along and he fills in the blank. I am. I am the bread of life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, the life. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way to the Father. And there's only one way to the Father, and that's through me. So Jesus here, making it very clear for you and for me, I am your salvation. And whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth for us to receive, of course, and as I know most of you have, but if anyone is here this morning, you're out in a coffee shop, for the next moments, I want us to be still and take the time to consider this truth that Jesus is the I am and through him is salvation. There is no other salvation. And that's what Jesus is saying. There's no other relationship with God. It's through Jesus Christ alone as he came and died for you, proven that he is truly the I am, the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection and the life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words given to us here. And, Lord, my, my prayer is, if there is anyone here that is listening to this Bible study, that has never surrendered to life to Jesus Christ, that he is the way, not a way. He is the life. And there's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other source of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ who came to this world. The one who saw Abraham. The one who from the burning bush would declare, I am that I am. And now 2,000 years ago, telling these religious leaders before Abraham was, I am. The great I am. And he's here in this place. Lord, we know by your Holy Spirit drawing people to yourself with the truth of the word. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here right now that has not come to Jesus and surrendered their life to Jesus, Lord, draw them. And I pray that if that is you this morning, that you can't earn your way to heaven. Jesus came and died for your sins. And he loves you so much that he wants to save you just as he wanted to save those religious leaders. And you've heard truth this morning. If you do not believe that he is the I am, you will die in your sins because there is no other sacrifice for sin, only Jesus. Salvation is a free gift. You come by faith. Opening up your heart to him. Realizing that you are a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus. And repenting. That word just simply means turn to him. It's a very freeing word, a very liberating word. You turn to Jesus for salvation. You surrender your heart to him. You believe that he died for your sins and he rose again from the grave. He's alive. Perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you open up your heart to him and ask him to sit on the throne of your heart? And you can do that right where you're sitting. If that means anything. Again, out in the coffee shop, I know it's, it's full out there. I just ask there to be no moving around right now. And in this sanctuary, 
that today is the day of salvation if you've never done that. Maybe you've gone to church. The church won't save you. Maybe you see yourself as a good person. None of us are good enough. Maybe you're here and you think that, Lord, I just have messed up so badly. How could you forgive somebody like me? He loves you and all manner of sin is forgiven as you believe in him. He just wants you to come. Come and surrender your life to him. Believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. You pray, Jesus, I come to you right now, a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me. And I do believe in my heart that you died for my sins, for all of my sins. You were put into a grave and you rose again and you're alive. And I open my heart to you right now. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Sit on the throne of my heart. My life is not its own. I surrender to you and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if there is anybody in this sanctuary that if you prayed that prayer, or even if you're out in a coffee shop, because we have those to minister to you and pray with you if you'd like and to give you uh, some things to help you in your, your new journey in life. But if you prayed that prayer this morning, will you raise your hand and put it back down so I can pray for you? Anybody at all? We're not going to prolong this, but we give opportunity at our services for people to come to Christ. Anybody at all in this place? Okay. And Father, we know what has been claimed of Jesus and is true, that he is the great I am. So may we declare that to others. And Lord, we all know those at the workplace or in our own family or those we go to school with, whoever it might be, that we have opportunity to share the claims of Jesus and the gospel message. Help us to be light, to declare the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us and guide us this week. Help us to live for you. And Lord, to trust in you in everything. We thank you for this morning and the time we've had together and in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand?